The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. After Jesus and his disciples left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. The Word of the Lord. Good morning, City Church. Thanks for having me again. Well, friends, it's February 7, and here in the occupied territory of Anna. Coston and Piscataway land, also known as Washington, D.C. Today marks 11 months that we've been worshiping online. 11 months since my children stepped into their schools. 11 months since I sat in a lecture. 11 months that we have stayed home. Well, most of us, anyway. Because scientists have told us that COVID-19 is highly contagious, and is especially deadly to people in high-risk populations. We've limited our social contact with people. The elderly have been isolated from their families in various ways. If anyone was potentially exposed to the virus, they too were isolated. Anyone who tested positive had to, quit, had to strictly quarantine. We saw our hospitals go through tons of PPE so staff could protect themselves from patients who were experiencing more severe symptoms. And although I've read that there's something like three variants of the virus out there, thanks to vaccines rolling out, we might have a chance of beating this virus. I mean, that's the plan anyway. But what happened in biblical times when people didn't have science or PPE or modern medicine? When someone was sick, they didn't have the technology to diagnose their illness or even find the cause. And now without knowing the root cause of someone's sickness, the person sick would often be cast aside because of fear that close proximity to that person would make them sick too. In fact, sickness or any form of illness was often understood to be tied to the spirit in some way. Near Eastern cultures believe that sickness was tied to punishment for sin that they committed or a form of spiritual testing. So as a result, anyone sick with long-term or short-term health issues, anyone with disabilities, or anyone with mental health issues would often face social stigma. People didn't want to be caught up with whatever God was testing you for, and they didn't want to be associated with whatever shady thing you were doing for God to punish you. Now, because of this stigma, even if someone wasn't contagious, it was hard for anyone to, to find any kind of work. And if they weren't working, then they weren't bringing in income. And if they continued to stay with their family, they might have been seen as a burden and just another extra mouth to feed. So when I read this passage, I wonder, what happened to Simon's mother-in-law that she ended up in Simon's home? Was she widowed and cast aside so Simon had to take her in? If so, how was she treated in Simon's home? 
Had she been helping out around the house while Simon was out fishing? When did she get sick? And has she been sick a long time? Would that be why Simon was e eager to get her to, for her to get better? When Jesus comes into Simon's home and sees how sick she is, he doesn't let the fact that it's the Sabbath stop him from healing Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus doesn't let the fact that she's a woman stop him from healing her. Jesus reaches out and touches a sick woman, someone no one wants to touch because she might be contagious or because they don't want to be anywhere near the receiving end of God's wrath. Jesus touches her even though to the rest of the ancient world, she was untouchable. In India, there is an entire caste of people who are deemed untouchable. The Dalits are seen as impure and less than human for simply being born into a caste system that has valued them as the lowest. The caste system in, in India was abolished since the 1950s, but the stigma on the Dalit people still lingers. And because of this, they suffer all forms of abuse. Dalits are relegated to jobs that no one else wants to do. They aren't allowed to worship in the same place as everyone else. They can't even drink from the same water fountains. The physical abuse they experience is so violent and unspeakable. Now, before you think that this is the kind of thing that only happens in other parts of the world, take a moment to think about America's own history of racism. I don't have to tell you that it wasn't long ago when black folks were also treated as less than human, reduced to property. It wasn't long ago when black folks in this nation weren't able to drink from the same water fountain, attend the same schools or sit on the same buses as white folks. Now, before you think, wait, that was a long time ago. I wanna ask you to take a look at our public schools and take a look at our neighborhoods. Racial divisions still exist. Racism has just evolved along with our changing policies and laws to justify limiting black and brown folks to certain neighborhoods and schools. And now before you think, but what you're talking about with, with Dalits is social stigma. That doesn't exist anymore. It's not that bad. I'm going to remind you that just last summer, when protesters marched on our streets, calling our attention to pr police brutality, demanding that we protect black lives as we do white lives, they were met with riot gear and tear gas. And now before you think, but Mira, but Mira, they were being violent. They broke into stores. They vandalized public and private property. I'm going to remind you that not even a month ago, Thousands upon thousands of people went head to head with law enforcement in our capital city, broke into a federal building, stole government property, smeared feces on the walls of the building, brought bombs, guns, and zip ties with all intention of using them on members of the Senate if they didn't have their way. And yet, besides one woman who was shot and later died, we didn't see the same level of violence that black folks experience at the hands of law enforcement on a daily basis. The fact of the matter is that this nation 
might have progressed in many ways, but evidence of America's own caste system is present when you take a critical look at how differently people of color are treated in this nation. The caste system is present when we take a critical look at whose needs have been cast aside in public education and whose needs have been cast aside in housing. The U.S. caste system is present when we are honest about who are seen as a threat and who are presumed guilty. The U.S. caste system is present when we start to notice who gets passed over for promotions and who we don't typically see in certain occupations. The caste system here has become so standard that we've gotten used to it. We shrug our, we shrug our shoulders saying, it is what it is. And the people who suffer most from this caste system are sick and tired. Jesus recognized how sick and tired Simon's mother-in-law was by the caste system that had rendered her unworthy of care. Jesus defied that system and saw her suffering. He saw her as human, deemed her worthy of healing and didn't care that it was Sabbath or that she was a woman. He saw her as simply human and restored her dignity and restored her worth. She might've been cast aside as a widow, deemed useless because she was sick, but more than the miracle here that Jesus took her fever from her was that Jesus saw her. The miracle here too is that Jesus chose to have compassion and empathy for an untouchable. And that was a miracle because it was unheard of. When Jesus reached out and took her hand, he broke cultural codes that made her untouchable. He took her hand and lifted her up. And the word used here to describe her being lifted up is the same word used to describe Jesus's resurrection from the dead. The word is igiro. Jesus defied death when his life was taken by Roman soldiers who crucified him, seeing him as a threat to the Roman Empire, acting on demands by the religious leaders of his time who also saw him as a threat to the religious establishment. They all participated in his death in this way. But Jesus defies death. Jesus, being the Son of God, overcomes death and is resurrected. And what Jesus does next for Simon's mother-in-law here is Jesus sets up the purpose of his ministry. You see, society had taken from this woman's life by saying she is unworthy as a woman, possibly even more so as a widow, and needed to be cast aside because she was sick. Society devalued many others like her, believing that they too were a burden. But Jesus didn't. He did different. Instead, he brought this woman back to life. Jesus met her and lifted her up, inviting her back into participating in the life of the household. Jesus brought her back into participating in life with her community, and she began to serve them. Now, admittedly, when I read that the woman got up and her fever left her and she began serving Jesus, and, she, and when she began serving them, admittedly, the feminist inside me cringed because I thought, 
Why on earth didn't Jesus just let her rest? Was that the only reason that she needed to get better? So that she could be a servant? But I did some digging and I found something really interesting in the translation of the word serve. The word that Mark uses here comes from the word diakoneo. It's this Greek word that we get from the word deacon, that we get the word deacon from. This same word appears when Jesus is being tested by Satan in the wilderness earlier in the chapter. Mark 1.13 says that while the evil spirits were taunting him, the angels were ministering to him. And the same verb used is diakoneo, the same way the angels were, in, were ministering to Jesus in the wilderness was the same way Simon's mother, mother-in-law ministered to Jesus and the disciples. She likely continued ministering to many others later who weren't given the time of day because they were sick or because people suspected that they were demon-possessed later on that evening. Now, because Jesus sees her and acknowledges her humanity, acknowledges her worth, she is invited to participate in ministry with Jesus and goes on to be part of restoring life for many others who have been cast aside by their community. The mysterious power of healing allowed Simon's mother-in-law to see the sin that had sucked the life out of her and made her sick and tired. The power of that healing made her aware of what she needed to do to be liberated from this virus that had taken from her. And then it gave her the tools for how she could minister to others in her community to be part of their liberation too. And all of that is initiated by Jesus's recognition that she was more than the virus that had overcome her. Jesus sets up for this woman and all the other sick and demon-possessed who are outcasts in their community. Jesus demonstrates his preferential treatment for them. Jesus demonstrates his, his preferential love for them. Jesus demonstrates that his love and compassion knows no boundaries of exclusion. His love for them does not differentiate them from anyone else. His love for them is not conditional on their health. He acts on that love in his willingness to break religious law, break social codes, and work into the night to show, his, to show that his actions are saying, I don't want you to live this partial life excluded from your community. I am restoring your humanity to you. I am restoring your dignity. I am restoring your worth. Society might have decided that they, didn't, that they didn't want to deal with you. They might have seen you as a burden, but I don't. And the irony here is that in this story, we see a group of people whom the entire community has marginalized and see them being welcomed in, in the most hospitable way, into someone's home, and then ministered to and loved on while the rest of the community is on the outside looking in. We see a reversal happening here. And those who are outcasts, 
have open access to the divine Son of God, and those who casted them aside were now distanced, and they were on the outside peering in through a doorway. Looking at it this way, perhaps there was a different sickness brewing in the community that Mark wanted to draw to our attention. Perhaps Mark wanted to contrast the exclusion of the community from the ministry of healing being experienced in Simon's home. Perhaps Mark is showing readers that because the community had excluded the vulnerable, they've also in excluded themselves from participating in this radical communal act of love and compassion. Jesus demonstrates that he doesn't care about gender or purity or class or social status. He and Simon's household participate in radically inclusive hospitality and care in their healing ministry. The door is open and anyone is welcome to join in and yet the town chooses to remain on the other side of those walls. This virus shows up in many forms today. It shows up in false social hierarchies that place certain communities at the top and others at the bottom. Racism is one such virus and typical of viruses, it's mutated over time. Laws might've changed, but racism hasn't. Racism has evolved over time and in many ways, we as a society continue to reduce black folks to tropes and stereotypes taking from their humanity. Black, brown, and indigenous folks are sick and tired of this virus that continues to linger. Jesus doesn't gaslight or ignore anyone's illness. Jesus doesn't give up on them. Jesus sees the humanity in everyone that is brought to him first. He chooses compassion first over allowing lies that burden the vulnerable cloud his own perception of them. We, as a society, have allowed racial, explicit, and implicit biases cloud our perception of entire groups of people, and we need to confront this virus. Otherwise, it will just continue to mutate. New strains will continue to show up if we aren't willing to own up to our own ignorance and make moves to right what has been wronged. We, as a society, are called to see the humanity in those who have been burdened by the social stigma that we placed on them. We are called to participate in life together, to experience the fullness that God intended for us. The vision of humanity, of humanity that we are called to in establishing God's kingdom here on earth was right there inside Simon's home. So today, on the first Sunday of Black History Month, let's take an honest look at this story and think about where, would we, where we would like to be. Let's be honest if we've been sitting on the outside looking in. Let's acknowledge and repent of that. Let's be intentional about educating ourselves about the history of racism in this nation and ponder what has kept us from participating in God's vision of radical community Let's be honest about it. And if you're one who is sick and tired of the virus of racism 
and how it has threatened to diminish your life, be encouraged because God always wants life for you. God is reaching out to us now and wants us to claim our right to live in fullness. God recognizes our suffering and by God's mysterious work in us, we can turn our suffering into liberation for our community. God paves the way for us to live fully, being a part of action that enlivens our community and restores our community. God desires for us to live fully. Let's be intentional in the ways we observe Black history this month, in spotlighting, participating in, and making space for the stories and experiences of Black folks. Let's be intentional about participating in and making space for Black joy. But mostly, let's be intentional about making the recognition of the value of Black lives a daily practice that lasts all year round. Let's pray. Dear God, when you created us, Lord, you breathed life into us. You breathed your ruach, your breath into each of us. And you breathed life into us indiscriminate of who we are. But God, the sin of our in our lives has caused us to take that breath, to take that life from one another for superficial, for sinful, hierarchical reasons that are false. The honest truth, God, is that we are all loved by you. We are all worthy. And so, God, I ask you to invite us into that door. Prompt us, God, to, to confront our biases, confront our sin, because we, we desire, God, to participate in your ministry of healing, to participate in, in the joy of restoration, God. Show us, God, how we, can, how we can let go of our biases, let go of our sin. Forgive us, God, so that we too can participate alongside our siblings in community. And for God, and God for, for my black and brown siblings, for my indigenous siblings, for my queer siblings. May you restore us, God. Restore us. Turn our suffering into gladness, God, into ways that, that we can heal one another, that we can speak life into one another. I'm grateful, God, that because of the cross, you bear all our suffering and you point us towards a hope in a new life. Show us, God, what that new life looks like. I lift all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.